to, to downplay certain things, to think it can't be that bad or it can't be that good. I remember very well, um, 22 years ago, almost to the day, and I had a phone call from a lady who, in my eyes, could exaggerate sometimes and make a big fuss out of things. And she says, Tim, have you, have you seen the news today? Have you had the news on? And she would have been watching the BBC 24-hour news channel, then, I think, in its infancy. Um, but she was glued to the screen. She said, do you know what's happened in New York? A plane has flown into the World Trade Center. And um, I spoke to her briefly, and I put the phone down. I thought, it can't be that bad. And of course, uh, a second plane flew into the towers and there was the attack on the Pentagon as well. 3,000 people died. It was a real hinge point in history, uh, as it turned out. Uh, people do exaggerate, don't they? And sometimes we're on our guard. Uh, the fishermen will uh, describe how long, how big the fish is, and we take it with a, a pinch of salt. And um, I'm very wary of superlatives of any kind. The biggest, the best. Is it really? This is a passage of superlatives. And it's no good applying your own mental filter to it. As I am inclined to do and say, it can't be that good, can it? Really? Is it true? There are five um, superlatives. Superlative, uh, good, better, best. So the best, the greatest. Five superlatives I want to pick out from the, uh, the chapter here. We're thinking about the, the prospect of the end of faith, where the life of faith leads, where it ends. Through uh, the struggles, what is the destination? My first superlative is Christians are the safest people. Verse 5a. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There are trials there are threats. For Christians, there is open persecution in certain parts of the world today. In places like uh, Pakistan uh, and also in China, many parts of the world, Christian pastors, uh, sometimes their, their families are under attack and uh, they're imprisoned. And church buildings are destroyed. And even in our own situation, which doesn't seem to be full of persecution in that sense, nevertheless, every believer attracts the opposition of the enemy. And Satan is out to undermine the faith of the humblest believer and out to destroy the marriages of Christians and out to set believers at odds with each other. He's out to bring down pastors and 
preachers. And uh, we are described as exiles. Uh, Peter is writing his letter to believers who've been scattered by persecution. And they find themselves in all these various areas in, in modern day Turkey, but widely spread Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, uh, Bithynia. We too are strangers in the world. We're exiles. We're not at home. We're going through the world to our home. But notice what kind of exiles we are in verse 1. Peter says to those who are elect exiles, elect exiles. And he goes further in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Do you see how safe you are as a believer this morning? You are chosen by God, your elect. Before the foundation of the world, God determined who would be his. And by virtue of believing in Jesus Christ, you have shown that you are elect and that God will certainly keep you. And moreover, you are sprinkled with his blood. It's a strange uh, phrase to use to a modern reader. What does that mean, sprinkled with his blood? It means that we are covered. It means that our destiny, our welfare is taken care of by the blood, by the sacrifice of Calvary. We are under, we are protected by that. Who shall lay any charge against God's elect? The Apostle Paul says. The answer is no one. No one can lay any charge. No one can bring any sin against you because, uh, Paul continues in Romans 8, it is Christ who died. And more than that is risen again. So the death of Christ covers us. We are safe. We're set apart by the Holy Spirit. We've been gathered by those everlasting arms into the family of God. Christians are the safest people. We are being kept. Nothing can harm us. And secondly, we have the best inheritance. We are being kept safe. Why? We are being kept for the inheritance. Verse 4. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Throughout the chapter, there are contrasts with things that, though they are precious in the world's eyes, in fact, do not last. Even gold that perishes, uh, verse 7, and in verse 18, 
silver and gold are perishable things. And then verse 23 and 24 speaks about perishable seed and imperishable. And we have been born again through the imperishable seed. So we are being kept for something that no matter the passage of time may be uh, long, but it will be as bright and as glorious and as gleaming as it ever was to be at home with God. And there are treasures in heaven that uh, Jesus speaks of in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew 6. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Make it your business then so to live in this life, so to invest yourselves in living for Christ that you know that your goal is to be with him, that your goal is the renewed heavens and earth in which righteousness dwells. That's the inheritance, that's the place that has been prepared for us. Jesus says, doesn't he, in John 14, before uh, he goes to his sufferings and his death, I go to prepare a place for you. I'm going at the cross to take upon myself every effect, every curse of sin that blights your own heart and separates you from God and condemns you to hell, and I'm taking upon myself the curse of sin that affects this very planet, so that by virtue of my work, everything will be reconciled to God. Everything shall be made new. I dare say, don't hold me to it, that species that have been lost will be recovered and damaged to the environment made good and we shall dwell without any threat from the animal kingdom. We shall be made complete in Christ, body and soul. And that's why uh, in verse 5, Peter says that we are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We are saved by faith now, but there's a salvation whose extent is yet to be revealed. And we are heirs of that. And uh, Paul says when he writes to the believers in, in Philippi, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we eagerly await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. The inheritance that uh, Israel had, uh, the land, proved to be uh, temporary, but believers in Christ have 
an inheritance that no one can invade, no one can snatch from us. It isn't subject to decay in any way. And that is our goal. That's the end of our faith. And then uh, thirdly, believers in Christ have the deepest joy. Uh, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And I think that's why I chose the, <clears throat> the hymn that we opened with uh, and the verse that says, I thank thee more that all my joy is touched with pain, that shadows fall on brightest hours, that thorns remain, so that earth's bliss may be my guide and not my chain. Pity the person for whom the pleasures of earth are a chain, for whom that is their only goal, for whom that is their only possible route of satisfaction, because those things disappear, those things are temporary, those things are flawed and spoiled. And it's true, just like a picnic on a summer's day, uh, the food can be lovely, the temperature can be just right, it's a perfect day, but there'll be a wasp, there'll be flies. A sense of regret, a sense of even foreboding can tinge the happiest times. Well, it's almost perfect, isn't it? But we know that it can't last. It, it'll be temporary. And this world's goods and pleasures can never satisfy. The joy that the believer has cannot be drawn from those temporary things. It has to be drawn from a deeper source. And if it can't come from anything below on the earth, then it must come from above. And when Jesus talks about the new birth, he speaks about a birth from above. And that's why Peter emphasizes the new birth, because that gives us the deepest joy. So verse 3, uh, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And then verse 23, again, since you have been born again. And therefore, the joy that we have as Christians cannot be explained. It's something that defies logic. And it goes against circumstances. But, as verse 8 says, it's a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. We can come close to it at times, perhaps on our own or together, and the Lord can meet with us, and we wouldn't know what to say. We wouldn't know how to describe even what we feel. We just know it's nothing to do with anything around us. It's all to do with God. It's all to do with Christ. It is a foretaste of heaven. It anticipates heaven. And I say now, as I said uh, when I prayed, this is the birthright of every Christian uh, believer. It's not the product of uh, a special 
uh, blessing, but it is ours to seek and ours to grasp and ours to receive from a kind and good heavenly Father who knows how to give good gifts to his children. The deepest joy. And uh, fourthly, the most amazing salvation. Uh, look at verses 10 to 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Well, the angels are used to dwelling in an environment, an ambience of absolute perfection and bliss and light. And nothing comes in, nothing sinful, nothing dirty comes into any angel's uh, experience. There they are in the presence of God. And you'd think there's nothing that they don't know, there's nothing that they uh, would evade uh, their knowledge, but they long to look into the salvation that God was preparing in the times of the prophets. There were just a few hints of what God would do, just enough to, uh, for the prophets to know that it wasn't a message from them and that what they were preaching couldn't just apply to their own times. There had to be a greater fulfillment. So salvation is accomplished in one sense through what Christ has done, but it's also yet to be revealed. Salvation is not just about me. That would be wonderful enough. And it isn't just that my sins are forgiven. And if you sit down and think about the sins that you've committed, if you were to write a list, a catalogue of the things that you've thought and said and done, and to think that those sins were laid upon the shoulders of Christ. Does it occur to you that Christ on the cross was reckoned to be guilty of your sins? Does it occur to you that Christ was reckoned to have thought your impure thoughts, that he was reckoned to be as greedy as you are, or as envious, or as bitter as you are? Does it occur to you that Jesus Christ was reckoned not to have loved the Lord his God with all his heart and mind and soul and strength? Every sin was laid on him at the cross. 
and by the sacrifice of one single man, it's all dealt with once and for all. That's wonderful enough. How marvelous, how wonderful, my Savior's love to me, love to the loveless shown, that they might lovely be. And then to think that in the salvation that Christ has accomplished for me, that I shall be renewed body and soul. And then to think it isn't just about me, it's about the whole people of God, Jew and Gentile alike, the riches of God's purpose, that the gospel overflowed the boundaries of Israel, and that there will be people from every tribe and kindred and nation on the face of the earth gathered to God, celebrating his grace. More than that, that it is about the whole of creation being renewed and all the effects of sin purged away. Who can tell what that will look like? Two key things, uh, grace in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. That's what makes salvation amazing. The grace that God shows to helpless sinners. The things that God has put in place. The work that Christ accomplished, knowing that we, in our helplessness, could never, in a whole eternity, amass enough good works to please him. But Christ offered his own perfect life in our place. The grace of God shown to sinners. And then the other key word in this most amazing salvation is glory. At uh, the end of verse uh, 11, the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The joy that we will have is filled with glory. He's already said in verse 8, and he speaks about a glory that lies beyond suffering. It lay beyond the sufferings of Christ for him. He accomplished his work. He went through his sufferings and death, rose again, entered into glory. And that glory lies ahead of us who follow Christ through sufferings to glory. And, as Paul says, weighed in the scales of eternity, what comparison will you make? The momentary sufferings of this life. And there are trials, and there are difficulties, and there are persecutions, and there's pain. But what comparison will you make between these momentary afflictions and the weight of glory that lies ahead? <coughs> but then lastly, number five, the most wonderful Saviour. Verse 7, the end of the verse, uh, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's all about him being revealed. 
and verse 13 uh, as well, the end of that verse. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And verse 19, or verse 18 and 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Could equally have called this message not so much the finish uh, of faith or the finish line of faith, but the finisher of our faith, because that's how Jesus is described in Hebrews 12. He's the author, the source is from him, and he's the finisher uh, of our faith. And this is the ultimate outcome of our faith, according to Peter, that we shall see him. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him, though you do not now see him. You see, he says that twice. But the second time, though you do not see him now. In other words, you will see him. You don't see him now, but you will see him. And to see him in the flesh, bodily restored, constitutes the essence of your inheritance and the glory that will be ours. Blessed are those, Jesus says, who've not seen and yet uh, believed. And if we're blessed now, not seeing but believing, what will it be then to actually see him? A while ago, I preached on um, Job 19, and amazingly, he, all those millennia back from our own time, and even uh, three, four millennia back from the time of Jesus, Job says, oh, that my words were written, oh, that they were inscribed in a book, oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart yearns within me. It's hard to envisage, isn't it? That however our bodies, these lowly bodies, however they've been disposed of, whether they've been lying in a coffin in the grave, whether they've been cremated, whether to all intents and purposes there's nothing left yet from the imperishable seed, God is able to restore us, body and soul, so that we shall be in his presence. With our own two eyes, we shall see him. I'll tell you two things that it won't be like. To see Jesus won't be surreal or dreamlike. 
You know how dreams are just strange, aren't they? And there are people and situations that you have in dreams that would never normally be together, and you know it's not real. It couldn't really have happened. But to see Jesus will be the most natural, the most real encounter that we've ever had. And in fact, seeing him, everything else will be like a dream. Everything on earth will be dreamlike. And I can say as well, secondly, that our seeing Jesus won't be spoiled by sin. Peter himself had seen Jesus at the, in his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was given that privilege along with James and John. But there was a time later when Peter uh, saw Jesus and um, there was a pain to that encounter uh, Luke 22 and verse 61. And you'll know that um, Peter was very impulsive, launched himself into uh, everything, um, but he denied. He said he would never do it, but three times he denied that he, ever, he even knew uh, Jesus. And um, he encounters Jesus uh, after that, so Luke 22 and verse uh, 60. So while he was still speaking at the third occasion of his denial of Jesus, uh, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. And we may have uh, encounters similar to that in this life when we weep bitterly over our sins. And we have a sense of the Lord's presence such that we feel defiled and dirty and we weep at the things that we have said and done or failed to say and do that we should have. But I can say to you that when we see Jesus in that final way, face to face, that encounter will not be spoiled by sin. There'll be no regrets. There'll be no shame. All sin and all thought of sin banished as far as the east is from the west. The hymn that we sung um, said, didn't it, that we shall never uh, find our uh, joy truly until we lean on Jesus' breast. It's him, isn't it? And I ask you this morning whether your focus is on him. It's the only thing that makes life worthwhile. It's the only uh, goal truly for going through this world. Everything else is either darkness or superstition or vain hopes. Here 
is something solid, to know Jesus Christ. And by faith, to be kept for an inheritance that is all about him, that revolves around the lamb on the throne. Peter closes his chapter. This is the good news that is preached to you. So there's the good news. And it's preached Sunday by Sunday. And you've heard it many times. There it is. Uh, will you grasp it and will you believe today? And if you already believe, will you re-believe and recommit yourself um, to it? Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for the things that are so freely given to us uh, in your word. We thank you that there is the good news of Christ crucified. There's the good news of sins forgiven, of hell subdued, of peace with heaven. We thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ is set before us in his glory and beauty and uh, the joy that he had and the joy that he now has uh, is in part ours by the Holy Spirit. And uh, Father, we pray that you would create in us a longing for, uh, for him, a longing to be with him as fully as we can be, to know him as fully as he can be known. Father, we pray that as we uh, sometimes feel we stumble uh, through uh, this life, yet, Lord, uh, each day is a day's march nearer home. And we pray that you'd comfort us, Lord, with the knowledge that you are keeping us by faith for that great and glorious inheritance with all the saints. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen.